Uh, Pastor and theologian John Owen said this about the Bible, and we've shared this before. I love this quote. He says, in the divine scriptures, there are shallows and there are deeps. Shallows where the lamb may wade and deeps where the elephant may swim. Now, Owen doesn't use the word shallow there in the negative sense that we're accustomed to. What he means is there are things in the Bible that are very simple to understand, right? You can read and comprehend, young and old, uh, smart, not so smart, trained in theology, not trained in theology, and you can grasp them when you read them. Then there are things in the Bible, there are truths that are so deep that even the most brilliant minds can't plunge the depths of those things. And both of those are glorious truths. And as we look at the Gospel of John, John is just like that. And if you've been with us for a while, maybe you've sensed that a little bit. Last week, we plunged into the theological depths of Jesus' teaching on his relationship as the Father and the Son, right? How he relates to the Father. And then this week, we're starting chapter 6, and for the next two weeks, we're going to be in this chapter, and we're going to see that John 6 has both of those things. There are, are shallow waters where the lamb wades. And there are depths where the elephant swims. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to wade in some shallow waters a little bit. If you were with us last week, you know there was some, there's just deep, beautiful, glorious truth about who Jesus is. Now we're coming up for air a little bit, and we're in the shallow waters, and we're, we're seeing two more miracles of Jesus. And then next week, we'll see Jesus then come behind and teach what the miracles and signs that we see today. He's going to teach us what they meant. But before we do that, before we jump into John chapter 6, let's take a step back for a moment because the Gospel of John is a big book, right? It's 21 chapters. And uh, we're, we're 13, I think this is the 13th sermon in the series, so we're well into it. And sometimes it can be helpful to take a step back and kind of get an overview so we don't miss the forest for the trees. So we're, we're, let's take a step back for a moment and do just a flyover. And what I want to do is I want to read to you a few verses that we've, most of these we've already walked through in the earlier chapters of John. Some of them we haven't yet. And as I read these, I, and they'll be on the screen, I want you to try and identify in your mind a recurring theme that you keep seeing. Because what we'll see in these verses and what we'll see in John chapter 6 this week and next week is really at the center of this gospel. It's at the center of the gospel of John, but not only uh, this, this gospel of John, it's the center of the gospel message itself. And so we don't want to miss this. And so here are a few of these verses. See if you can pick out a theme. John 1.16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. John 2.7. Where Jesus turns the water into the wine at the wedding at Cana. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. John 4, 14, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, the water that I will give him will become to him, in him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 6, 12, our passage this morning. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, and nothing may be lost. John 7, 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then lastly, John 15, 11, these things I have spoken, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So do you see a theme here in John, in what Jesus is teaching us? Fullness. 
filled to the brim, a spring of living water, eating until full, rivers of living water flowing out of your heart, and the fullness of joy. In fact, I think John 1.16 is a wonderful summary of the gospel of John. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We're not full. We're lacking, but Jesus is full. Jesus gives of himself. And he doesn't, friends, this is the glory of the gospel of John in this chapter. He doesn't just give bits here and there. He gives of his fullness, grace upon grace, which means unmerited favor upon unmerited favor poured out on those who would receive him. So you and I woke up yesterday morning and we were in need of grace for the day, whether we recognize it or not. And guess what? Jesus gave that grace, and the reason I know that is because you're here right now, right? Then we woke up this morning, and guess what? It's a new day, and we need more grace, and Jesus stands ready to pour from his fullness. So the question of the book of John in John chapter 6 that we'll see, the question for you and I is not, will he give of his fullness? He's answered that already. The question is, will we receive his fullness. Will we receive his grace? Not try to earn it, not try to rely on our own self-sufficiency, but we receive the fullness of grace that flows out of Jesus with empty hands of faith. That's what John chapter 6 is about this morning. And this is why this is the only sign or miracle of Jesus that we see the feeding of the 5,000 in all four gospels. Why is that? It's the only one because the gospel writers knew that this is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel. It's one of the clearest pictures of Jesus giving of his fullness to needy people. And so as we jump in, just a little bit of background here. John chapter 6 contains, our passage this morning, gives us these two more miracles, these signs as John calls them, that point to Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. The first one is this feeding of the multitude of people. And then second, we see it almost seems like an add-on. I don't know if you noticed it when Sam was reading. It's just a few verses, but we see Jesus walking on the water in the midst of the storm. almost feels like it's out of place, right? But as we'll see, it's extremely relevant as Jesus is shaping and forming those who follow him. So what we're ultimately seeing here, what we want to see this morning, is Jesus giving grace out of his fullness of himself. But the question is, will the crowds and the disciples receive it? And the deeper question is, will you and I receive his grace upon grace? And so as we walk through this passage, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see the compassion of Christ. Then we're going to see the provision of Christ. And then finally, we'll see the power of Christ. So as we jump in, the compassion of Christ. Verses 1 and 2 tell us, gives us some setting here. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. You notice, John gives us a hint here at the motive of the crowds, doesn't he? He's, he's essentially telling us, and Jesus will confirm this in next week's passage, that they're there for the show. They had heard of this miracle worker, this man who could heal the sick and the lame. Maybe they could catch a glimpse of something great. Maybe they could have their needs met. Who knows? But they wanted to see. They're following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. In verse 3 and 4, Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover of the feast of the Jews was at hand. 
And John tells us this because this, that the fact that this was a Passover feast, because this was a time of intense zeal for Jewish people, nationalistic zeal. And as we'll see in the moment, we'll see the effects of that zeal on the crowd when they try to make Jesus king. But there's also this important connection with Passover and the miracle that Jesus is about to perform. And we get to verse 5, and we see the compassion of Christ on those in need. He's lifting up his eyes then. And seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, John doesn't explicitly use the word compassion here, but Mark 6.34 tells us that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And, And the word there for compassion means deeply moved inwardly with concern. He felt it in his gut. A, good, a, a sort of good translation, but is also kind of hilarious, is that he was moved in his bowels, right? Now, when we say bowel movement, we mean something different, right? But that word meant that he felt for these people. He felt it deep in his gut, deep in his bowels as he looked on them because they were without a leader, because they were in need. He was deeply moved with concern for them. We also know that the majority of this crowd, if not all of them, were, were poor. And the, the reason we know that is because later we'll see the only person who has food is a boy that has barley cakes, which one Jewish writer calls the food of beasts. It was a sign of, it was, it was a poor man's snack. It was a sign of poverty. So Jesus sees this crowd of people lost, wandering, And his immediate concern was, verse 5, that they may eat. He's moved to compassion for them. And if you think about what's happening here, uh, it's even more incredible because Mark tells us this is after a busy season of ministry for Jesus where him and his disciples couldn't even get away from people long enough to eat themselves. If you read Mark's account in Mark 6, they're actually running away from the people. And they can't get away. And so Jesus stops, and he shows compassion on them. You and I might expect Jesus to say here, listen, guys, we're done. I'm tired. I've given of myself. I need rest. I've done enough for you people. Know that your motives in in following me aren't really pure in the first place. If Jesus responded that way, we'd say, yeah, that's all right. We, We would affirm that. None of us would hold that against him. But what does Jesus do? He pauses He continues to give of himself, and he shows concern and compassion for those who are in need. And he's an example for us here, right? Oh, how we need this Christ-like vision for those around us, for those in need. We need Jesus to help us see others not as a nuisance, an interruption of our plans, but as image bearers in need of loving care. Last Sunday, we heard, you heard in the announcements today, we, we recognize Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Well, why do we as Christians stand for life from the womb to the tomb? Because there is no one in the history of the world who values human life and shows more compassion on the oppressed than Jesus. Right? Monday was Martin Luther King Day, a day when we remember a man that God raised up in our nation to stand against the evils of racism. Why is that important to us as Christians? Because there is no one in the history of the world who has more compassion on victims of racism and inequality than Jesus. He's an example for us here. Or what about those in our lives who are draining? 
What about those around us who are a nuisance to us? Maybe they seem like they always have an ulterior motive. Our, our culture says, just get rid of all the toxic people in your life, right? I read an article this week, nine steps of getting rid of toxic people in your life. Here's how to do it. I actually didn't read. I just read the first one. It was like, it's not good. But there were, there were eight more. But what does Jesus do? Jesus goes to the toxic people, and he knows they're toxic, and he still gives of himself. Right? Jesus' compassion for those in need is an example to us here. But friends, more than that, Christ's compassion is for each one of us. We are needy, toxic people, and we're the recipients of this. Be it physical or spiritual, Jesus sees you and he's deeply moved inwardly with compassion for your need. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, there is one who cares for you. His eye is fixed on you. His heart beats with pity for your woe. And his hand omnipotent, that means all powerful, shall yet bring you the needed help. Jesus has compassion on those in need. But, but that's not all that we see here. Jesus also has compassion for his doubting disciples. In fact, John's account's primary focus is not on the crowds, but on his disciples, his interaction with his disciples. Look at verse 5 and 6. Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And I love verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And I, I love John's comments on Jesus' intentions because I imagine, you know, John outlived all the other disciples. I imagine him all these years later reflecting on this and just wondering, man, how many times was Jesus just messing with us to teach us a lesson, right? <laughs> now consider the problem here. Verse 10 tells us that there were 5,000 men in this crowd. So with women and children, we're talking close to fifteen to 20,000 people like Fenway half full, right? And Jesus turns to Philip and is like, hey man, you got any ideas? <laughs> and now here's the test. John tells us this was a test. This is what Jesus was doing. So, so what's the test? Well, will these men who have seen Jesus turn water into wine, who have seen Jesus heal the sick and the lame, and have now heard extensive teaching on his identity as the God-man, will they believe that this hungry crowd is no big deal for Jesus? That's the test. Will they believe or will they doubt? Verse 7 gives us an answer. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Philip fails the test, right? The, the answer, the right answer would have been, the answer of faith, Jesus, we don't need any bread, we've got you. But instead, what does Philip do? He breaks out his calculator. And he starts crunching numbers. Jesus, do you realize that it would take more than a half year's income to feed the entire crowd? We're poor traveling ministers. We've got nothing. D.A. Carson comments on Philip's response here. And listen, hear yourself in this. Philip's response betrays the fact that he can only think at the level of the marketplace, the natural world. Right? He can't bring his mind up into an eternal solution. He's focused on the temporal problem. So then Andrew's brought into the picture. He's the brother of Peter. And along with Philip, they're local guys. They're from Bethsaida. 
That's why they're involved in this. And so he starts looking around. Maybe I know somebody who can help me out. And he finds this boy, verses 8 and 9, uh, tell us that Andrew finds this boy with five loaves. These are small barley cakes and two fish. This is like a first century Jewish Lunchable, right? And at first, it looks like Andrew might have faith. Oh, I found this guy. Jesus, do your thing, just like at the wedding. Multiply this, but he doesn't. Verse 9 says, but what are they for so many? See, both Philip and Andrew have witnessed the miraculous knowledge of Jesus. They've seen the miraculous power to heal the sick. They've seen him turn water into wine. In fact, Mark's account account tells us right before this, Jesus gave the disciples power. They went out and themselves healed the sick and cast out demons. But here they are in the very next setting, and they're still lacking faith. Now, you might ask, well, why would Jesus go through all of this trouble? Why wouldn't he just snap his fingers like he did at the wedding at Cana, and we could just have all these people fed. Listen, Jesus loves his disciples so much. He has compassion on his doubting disciples so much that he's showing them their need as they face an impossible situation. Jesus loves us so much that sometimes what he does is he puts us in situations where he sweeps the legs right out from under us, where we can recognize that the ground we're standing on was never solid in the first place, where we can see that we're insufficient for the problem at hand. Then he takes our feet and plants them on the solid rock of his sufficiency. He's testing them because he loves them. He cares for them. He wants them to see that their hope is is not in eternal sufficiency of Christ, but in something else. See, we tend to think, and I'm like this too, we tend to think any undesirable situation that comes our way automatically means God's out to get us, right? Something happens in life and we think, oh, what what did I do wrong? And then we start asking questions that, I'm sorry, the Bible tells us very clearly that we're we're never going to be able to answer this side of heaven. We start trying to figure out the deep intricacies of God's perfect sovereign will. But James 1, 2 through 4 tells us this, gives us another way. It says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Jesus wants us to be full. He wants us to lack nothing. So what does he do? He tests us. And if that's our mindset, if we understand that when we're in situations where we're desperate, when we're suffering, then the question we would be asking is God, is not, God, let me try and figure out all the details of your secret hidden will, but God, how are you using this situation to teach me to recognize my insufficiency so that I would then turn and rely on you fully? That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples here. Of course you can't feed all these people. That's why you need me. Of course you can't save yourself. That's why you need me. Of course you can't face this medical illness on your own. That's why you need me. He wants us to turn and see that he alone is sufficient for everything. And friends, this is not to make light of our struggles or our sufferings. In fact, it's quite the opposite. This breathes purpose into these moments of testing. Right? The disciples needed to see that following Christ meant relying fully upon him and not on the ways of this world. And we need to see the same things too. 
And one of the greatest ways Jesus shows compassion on us is by walking us through those moments of testing. So do you realize that following Jesus means coming to the end of yourself in whatever situation and relying wholly on his sufficiency, fully upon him? Because he cares for us, he will test us. But also, this leads us to number two, he doesn't just have compassion on us, he also provides for us. Number two, we see the provision of Christ. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. So Jesus takes the, the lunchable, the meager meal, and he prays a prayer of thanksgiving to God, the Father, and they begin passing out the bread and fish. And people start to realize, wait a second, this food didn't come from somewhere. This, this wasn't a catered event, right? They realize a miracle has been performed, and they ate all they wanted. And then the immediate response, verse 14 They're overwhelmed with zeal. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now remember, this is a sign, right? A sign points us to something else. They're not ends within themselves. The problem with the crowds is they misunderstood the sign. Right? They thought the sign pointed to a political ruler who's going to overthrow Rome. Great. This guy can make bread out of nothing. This guy can heal the sick. This guy, Caesar, has nothing on him. So let's make him king so he can overthrow the rule and he can usher in the kingdom. But what does the sign actually point to? We know that's not what it points to because Jesus says, I'm not going to let you do that, and he flees. So what does it actually point to? Well, it points us to the spiritual provision of Jesus Christ. That's what he's teaching here. This, this audience who witnessed this miracle would have known their Old Testament very well. They would have recollected the story of God miraculously providing manna, bread from heaven, in the wilderness through Moses in Exodus 16. John told us in verse 4 again that this happened at the time of Passover, a celebration remembering God miraculously delivering the people from slavery in Exodus chapter 12 is when it's instituted. And at the center of Passover is what? the slaughter of a lamb without blemish. Now, if you've been with us in John, you know that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, has already told us, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So they saw in Jesus this prophet like Moses, this one who was promised in the book of Deuteronomy. And they were right in that in a sense, but they thought he was there for their political purposes. So they, they said, we're going to make him king. They misunderstood why he came. So what does Jesus say with this sign? Here's what he says. He says, listen, you're zealous about the annual Passover observance? Well, guess what? The sacrificial lamb of Passover points to me, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Listen, you guys know, I know you know about manna. You know your Old Testament really well. Well, guess what? The manna in the wilderness, the bread from heaven that must be eaten, was provided by God. Guess what? That points to me. I'm the bread of life that you must receive to have eternal life. Oh, you guys know the story about the Exodus. I know you do because you're Jews, so we know this well. We're reflecting on it now at Passover. Well, guess what? The Exodus points to me. 
I'm the one who will deliver you from slavery of sin and death to true freedom. That's what this sign points us to. But their minds were so focused on the temporal benefits, they wanted food and a new king. But they couldn't see the eternal blessing that was right in front of their eyes. And scripture is saying to them and to us, don't miss what the signs are pointing to. Or to change the illustration for a moment, because we've used the signs illustration a lot in the Gospel of John, because John uses it. But think of, think of photographs, right? I'm sure you have photographs in your house that mean a lot to you. If I were to, uh, to come over to your house, you could probably show me a photo of a friend or a spouse or a loved one or a child. And if I were to observe that photo and you'd say, oh man, I, I absolutely love this picture. What do you mean when you say that? You don't mean I have this emotional connection to the frame. You might mean that. Might, or, but that'd be weird. But you, you, don't mean, you don't mean this photo means so much to me because the paper that it is printed on is smooth as ice. Right? What do you mean when you say, I love this picture? You, you love it because it portrays someone you love. Right? You don't actually have this emotional connection to the frame. The frame is only so good as it makes the picture look good. Right? The paper is only so good as it prints well and shows you, portrays to you the one you actually love. If you love Jesus for what he gives instead of who he is, you don't love Jesus. And that's what's happening with the crowds. Jesus will emphasize this more and call them out directly on this next week. But that's called idolatry, and it's as absurd as loving a picture of your spouse more than your spouse. And so they're missing it here. You'll end up just like the crowd. We do this all the time, gladly receiving from Jesus. But then when we hear something we don't like, we're like, oh, hold on a minute, I'm not sure about that. Wait till next week. They love getting bread, but wait till Jesus teaches what that means. And they say, ah, we're out of here. Jesus didn't come merely to provide physical food and physical healing. He came to give life. And that's the miracle of the gospel. It's not that you can come to Jesus to get things, but that you and I, as broken, dead, sinful human beings, can come to Jesus and get life. We can't try and take Jesus and fit him into our own categories of who we think he should be. That's exactly what the crowd tries to do, and Jesus would have none of it. We come to Jesus on his terms, or we don't come to him at all. So Jesus goes up to the mountain. He runs away. See, from his fullness, this is what the crowd missed, from his fullness we've received not food upon food, not money upon money, not political stability upon political stability. From his fullness we've received grace upon grace, spiritual provision in Christ. Now notice this, not only is Jesus our provision, but this provision is abundant. I love this. Look at verse 11. It tells us they ate as much as they wanted. Verse 12 tells us they ate until full. Verse 13, so they gathered up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. These are all symbols of the abundance of which Christ gives of himself. Jared Wilson says this, Jesus gets carried away with his provision. Reminding us again that when it comes to the provision of Christ himself, 
We're mar- we aren't marginally satisfied, steadying the rumble of our tummies, but joyously full. In Christ, we are eternally satisfied, abundantly satisfied, mightily satisfied. And because the miracles are not ends in themselves, but signs pointing to Jesus himself, we're reminded here that we are not merely saved, but eternally saved, abundantly saved, and mightily saved. That's what Jesus offers us. So the question is, is Jesus your provision? Or are are you like the disciples who doubted the sufficiency of Christ? Philip and Andrew essentially said, Jesus, listen, we're all for you, but we we just don't think you're enough to handle this. Is that you or is Jesus enough? Or are you like the crowds? They essentially said, Jesus, we like you for what you can give and what you can do for our nation, but we're not willing to submit to you. Is that you or is Jesus your provision? Is he enough for you? Now, while Jesus withdraws to a mountain to be alone, John goes on to tell us, though that story is over, Jesus is not done yet giving of his fullness. And that leads us to number three. We see the power of Christ. We move to verse 16. It says, Now when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea at Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus' disciples, Jesus actually compels, it says in our translations, made them get into the boat to go to the other side while he goes up to a mountain and pray. And that's significant because it shows us that Jesus is the one who actually leads them into this storm they're, they're about to enter into. Right? But also, just as a side note here, notice what Jesus does. It's also an important reminder of how necessary it is to commune with God, right? Jesus, in the midst of one of the busiest seasons of his life, what does he do? He disappears to go commune with the Father. You think about the physical toll that ministry has taken on Jesus, the emotional toll of caring for others. People have just violently attempted to make him to be a king. And what what does Jesus do after all this? He goes to be alone in prayer with the Father. The strength of Christ's life and ministry, the key to his effectiveness was his communion with the Father. Friends, the same is true of you and me. We can't live a full life in Christ if we don't prioritize communing, a prayerful, loving relationship with God. Verse 18 goes on. It says, Then the sea became rough, as the disciples are out there, because a strong wind was blowing. They had rowed about three or four miles. Now notice, These disciples were just on the mountain in the presence of Jesus and have just witnessed one of the greatest miracles that's ever been performed. In the very next, the same day, that night, the very next setting, they're now in the darkness of night, far from the presence of Jesus, in the middle of an overwhelming storm. They went from the mountaintop to the valley in an instant. Not only that, the disciples, just like the crowd, undoubtedly misunderstood what Jesus came for. They were likely upset that Jesus didn't take this opportunity to step into the role as king. So you can imagine the thoughts that are going through their minds. We gave up our lives for this, and he just gave up his opportunity to do what he came to do. Now he's up on a mountain somewhere, and he sent us out here to die in this boat. Where's Jesus when you need him most? I imagine that's what they're wrestling with. And verse 19 tells us, when they had rowed about, rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. 
Now, Matthew and Mark tell us they were scared because they thought they saw a ghost. Um, now, that is totally understandable. <laughs> Middle of the night, storm, glowing man walking on water, right? I don't know if he was glowing. I just, that's how I picture it, right? But the reality is they were likely also fearful because of this storm. There, there was a lot of fishermen in this boat. They knew what they were doing. That shows the strength of the storm, that they weren't making any headway. And they see this thing. But notice, the, the focus, that's the focus of the other gospel accounts. John actually focuses on something different here. He's not primarily focusing on Jesus calming the storm. He's not focusing on what Jesus does, but who Jesus is. Right? And we see this in verse 20. Jesus calms the fear of his disciples by assuring them of his presence. Verse 20, it is I, do not be afraid. Now on one level, this is Jesus just saying, hey, I'm not a ghost, I'm Jesus, it's me, don't be afraid. But on, on a deeper level, there's a, a divine self-disclosure here. Because you could actually translate verse 20 as, I am, do not be afraid. And I am is the name of God given to Moses from God himself in Exodus, Exodus 3.14. So what, what does this have to do with the power of Christ? Well, Jesus is identifying himself as the great I am. It's as if he's saying, listen, there's no need to fear a powerful storm because I'm God. I am is here. I'm sovereign over the winds and the waves. I'm powerful behind, I'm the power behind all of creation. And you know this because you just saw me create something out of nothing on the mountaintop earlier today. You've seen my healing power. You have no reason to fear. I am is here. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And we'll see more of these I am statements in the rest of the gospel, really starting with next week's I am the bread of life passage. But let me just read you one instance where we see the power of Christ exhibited in this name in John 18. It's right um, before Jesus dies. He's about to be arrested in the garden. And John 18 verse 4 says this. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, verse 6, listen to this. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. These are battle-hardened soldiers. And Jesus declares his name. And what happens? And they're knocked off their feet by the power of God's name. Right? That's who Jesus is. And that same Jesus is meant to comfort the disciples in the storm. Think of a child who wakes up disoriented, fearful in the middle of the night, or they've had a bad nightmare. What do they need most in that moment? They need a parent to embrace them. They need to know, okay, mom's here. Dad's here. It's going to be okay. They're not going to let anything happen to me. And Jesus is saying, I am here. I am is here. That's who he is for his disciples and friends. That's who he is for you and me. That's who he is for all who believe, whether we're on the mountaintop of abundance, right? Or we're in the valley in the dark night of storm and despair. And this is so important for us because Jesus is not just compassionate. He is also powerful. Right? Therefore, he's able to take action and work to dispel the fear of his disciples. You see, if he were merely com compassionate, without the power to act on that compassion, then he wouldn't be able to be our provision. Right? He'd, he'd stand there on the mountain and say, I know all 20,000 of you are hungry, but tough luck. Who do you think I am? God? Right? 
That's what compassion would do without power. Or he'd, he'd stand on the shore of the lake and say, I really hope you guys can figure it out out there. Because I can't do anything. What do you expect me to do? Walk on water? But if, if he's just powerful and had no compassion on sinners like you and me, then guess what? He would justly crush us under the weight of his holiness. But in Jesus, from his fullness, we've received a compassionate and powerful Savior who thus can be our provision, grace upon grace. J.C. Ryle says it this way, Let all true Christians take comfort in the thought that their Savior is the Lord of the waves and winds, of storms and tempests, and can come to them in the darkest hour walking upon the sea. There are waves of trouble far heavier than any on the Lake of Galilee. There are days of darkness which test the faith of the holiest Christian. But let us never despair if Christ is our friend. He can come to our aid in an hour when we do not think and in ways that we did not expect. And when he comes, all will be calm. It's the power of a compassionate Christ who is our provision. But friends, there's even more here. There's another Exodus connection in this story. And this is why I think John, though it seems like an add-on, he puts it so closely to um, the feeding of the 5,000. Before God miraculously um, poured down bread from heaven for his people in the book of Exodus, manna, he delivered them in a miraculous way. They stood on the banks of the Red Sea, the Egyptian enemies pursuing them close behind. And what did God do? He parted the seas as if they were nothing. And his people walked from slavery to freedom by the miraculous grace of God. And he defeated the enemy Egyptians. And just as the Israelites needed that miraculous deliverance from God, so Jesus sees that his disciples need this miraculous deliverance. He, he rescues them by walking to them on the Sea of Galilee and safely delivering them to the other side. And the psalmist Asaph sings of this Exodus account in Psalm 77. And listen to what he says and hear this with John chapter 6 and Jesus walking on water in mind. Because remember, all of the scriptures point to Jesus. And this is one of them. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You see, the feeding of the 5,000 shows us that Christ is our all-sufficient provision. Right? All we need is found in him. But Jesus walking on water shows us that Christ is our deliverance. And just as our greatest need is not for physical food, but spiritual food, so our greatest problem is not a physical storm on a lake somewhere, but the spiritual storm of God's just judgment on us. And our only hope of deliverance is Jesus. We're sinners. Like the crowds, we've ignored who God is in pursuit of selfish gain. We've come to Jesus for what we want instead of who he is. We've tried to take him by force and fit him into an image of our own making. And like the disciples, we've looked at Jesus and we've doubted him and turned to our own self-sufficiency time and time again. We're just like them. But the good news of the gospel is that God has looked upon us just like he did them with compassion. He became one of us, yet without sin, living the life we can never live, dying a sinner's death, though he was without sin, on the cross that we deserve to die, willingly laying down his life 
And then God raised him from the dead that those who believe in him would be delivered from death to life and that we may feast, that means believe in Jesus for eternal provision and have our souls satisfied. And that we may also be conduits then taking that bread and handing it out to others who are in need. That's what Jesus has done for us. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a song. Connor's leading worship this week. And he picked this song. He thought we sang the song before. We haven't. He, I thought he, he read the passage and studied it so well that it was like, oh, what a great fit. Nope. It just came together. I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> you told me you did it. But as he, as he sent me this song, and I'm reading this, this, the lyrics to this song, it's called, I Will Glory in My Redeemer. I thought, man, verse two of this, this hymn is a wonderful summary of this passage. Listen to this. I will glory in my Redeemer. My life he bought, my love he owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in him alone. That's the bread of life. Then verse two. I'll glory in my Redeemer, his faithfulness my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me like the storms on the Sea of Galilee, my feet are firm, held by what? His grace. Friends, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Will we, re- will we receive him, our compassionate and powerful and all-sufficient Savior? Let's pray.